Well, it's great to have Scott back. When he was up here, I just thought, you know, it'd be great if he just kept preaching. And then I realized I was supposed to preach. So um, Scott talked to me a couple, uh, couple months ago and asked me if I would uh, share today. And he said, we're going to be between a couple of different series so I could talk about whatever I want, which was really good, actually, because I'd, I'd much rather just share with you guys what God's doing in my life and what God's teaching me then uh, try to go study something and then, and then bring you something that isn't like really on my heart. So um, <clears throat> that's kind of what I wanted to do today. And uh, I, last year, I've been just kind of slowly reading through the gospel of Luke. And uh, I've been doing that for over a year, so that either means I'm really a slow reader or there's some really good stuff in the book of Luke. And it's probably a combination of, the, of both. But I've really been just kind of soaking. And I, I got started in, in Luke really... Uh, I read the first three verses of, of Hebrews, um, and Hebrews chapter 1, it says this, that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in lots of different ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir over all things, through whom also he made the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he holds all things together by the word of his power. So in the book of Hebrews, the author makes some really audacious claims here, right? I mean, he says that Jesus, this man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago, is the radiance of God's glory. Wow. He says that he is the exact representation of God's nature. Any of you would just raise your hand and say, yeah, I, I think I fit that description. I'm the exact representation of God's nature. Probably not. And it gets even more bold. He says, everything in the universe was created by Jesus and is upheld by Jesus' power. And finally, that Jesus is God's final word to us. And I remember, I was just thinking, like, if that's true, and I believe with all my heart that it is, then I really wanted to get close to Jesus. I wanted to spend time with him. So I decided to just spend some time reading through the Gospels and just kind of imagining myself in the story, you know, uh, in the sandals and sitting there and, and listening to what Jesus said and watching what Jesus did and seeing how he interacted with people and just try to experience being there with him. And that's how I got to Luke. So as I've done those things and been just kind of reading slowly through the book, uh, Chad read Luke chapter 6, 6 through 11, but I noticed there are at least four other passages in the next few chapters of Luke that tell a very, very similar story. The theme of all of them is Jesus' view of the Sabbath contrasted with the religious leader's view of the Sabbath. And as I'm reading through Luke, I'm seeing this string of similar stories, really for the first time. I'd never noticed that before. And Luke, I realized, is trying to drive home a really important point about the Sabbath. And so that's what I want to talk to us about today. But um, let's go to prayer before we do. Lord, I just acknowledge that, that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. And your, your book is a mystery until you open it to us. And so, God, we pray that you would open your word to us. I pray for each person here that um, you would communicate with them in a supernatural way, the things that you would have for them through your word. And, Father, that you would just use me as a vessel to bring your word. I pray that it would be pure, that, that the things that I share would be true and and from your word, and Lord, we just ask your blessing on all of this and this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I, I have this fairly simple outline. I want to talk about why we need the Sabbath. I want to talk about how religion can corrupt the Sabbath. And I want to talk about how we can actually experience the Sabbath rest that God designed. So let's take a look at why we need the Sabbath. Now, unless you live in Kansas, uh, you probably don't need much convincing. We live in one of the fastest-paced, most stressed cultures in the world, in the history of the world, here in Southern California. So it's no mystery that we are a people desperately in need of rest. I went to Amazon Books, and I typed in the word stress, and 76,000 titles came up. I mean, we live in a 24-7 world. We calendar every 15 minutes of our time. We are busy, busy, busy people, and the the pace just gets faster and faster and faster for us. Um, there's a guy, Rob Mathiah, who wrote a book, The Sabbath Experiment. And in it, he refers to this newly developing phrase called 25-8. All right? And, and Mathiah describes it like this. He says, it's a concept beyond 24-7. It's a, an amount of time that we cannot actually live in, a pace of life that passes us by, a rush of demands and information that leaves us struggling impossibly to keep up. It signifies a frenzied culture that cares little for human limits or human thriving. It's a social force that overwhelms, suffocates, and crushes. It captures a feeling that many people live with of not being able to keep up with the pace of life, a feeling of drowning in life's demands. Does that resonate with anybody? Does that sound familiar in your household? You know, I read an article this week by a, a PhD psychologist who uh, is a corporate trainer and specializes in the area of stress. And she had an interesting take on this. She said, it's actually become chic to be stressed. Um, not only do many of us want the stress in our lives, but we want more stress than the next guy. She says, it has become the new way of keeping up with the Joneses. She goes on to say that stress has come to equal success. People are now determining their self-worth on how busy they are and how much they have to do. I heard somebody say recently that, that um, busy is the new fine. You heard this? So it used to be, they come up to John, say, John, how are you doing? John would say, fine. Now, I come up to John, and more likely than not, I say, how are you doing, John? He'll say, busy. And in fact, I shared this the first service. It's kind of funny. I said, a lot of times, we'll just, nowadays, we just bypass the, the whole how you doing thing, and we just come up to somebody and say, hey, you keeping busy? Well, he goes, yeah, I'm busy. And so somebody came in from between services on the way into this service, who's here, who I won't name, and he came up to me and said, you keeping busy? I decided it was kind of, kind of humorous, you know, that uh, it, it's just how we are. Are you keeping busy? Yeah, I'm busy. I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm really busy, because the busier I am, the more important I am, right? In his book, um, or actually, I think John Ortberg coined the, coined the phrase hurry sickness, you know, this, this thing that we're always in a hurry in our culture, we're, whether we're standing in a grocery store line, or whether we're driving on the freeway, or whether we're in cooking or whether we're doing something like just bathing the kids. We're always in a hurry trying to get through it. You know, I mean, what, what's that all about? You know, I, I drive down the freeway and like most of you, you know, I'll, I'll keep tabs on, on how everybody else is doing. And if there's somebody that's getting ahead of me and, and I, I'm kind of falling behind there, my stomach starts churning a little bit. I think, man, I got to get ahead. I got to get, I got to pass this, but this person's getting there before I am. I thought, well, where am I in such a hurry to get? 
And why do I care that some stranger that I'll never see gets there before I do? And what's that about? But we're just in this hurry culture. And the result of the busyness and the stress and the hurriness is it's killing us. Or at least it's making us fat, bald, crazy, and extremely unhealthy. And in this frenzied 25-8 high-stress world, God comes along and he says, slow down. We are not made to be 24-7 people. So I started looking back and I started doing this study on, on the Sabbath and um, came up to the, the Ten Commandments and, and there were a few interesting things that I found. The first interesting thing really was just that the Sabbath is even in the Ten Commandments. And you ever think about this? God had ten things to communicate to people of utmost importance and one of those was take a day off. Really? We couldn't, not, nothing more profound than that, take, take a day off. And in fact, it's commandment number four. It comes ahead of thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. And not only that, but God uses more words to describe the Sabbath commandment than any of the other Ten Commandments. This is important stuff to God. And I just started thinking about that. He's very clear. God says you have six days to do all your work, and on the seventh day, you're to rest. We're in this cycle. We're created to live in a cycle. Six days on, one day of rest. Six days on, one day of rest. And God says this, the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God, and nobody, and you are not to do any work. And nobody's to do any work. It actually says in the commandment, who can't do work? You can't do work. Your kids can't do work. Your housekeeper can't do work. Your guests can't do work. Everybody is supposed to rest on the Sabbath. God is very clear. You have six days to work. Have at it. Work hard. Do all of your stuff. But on the seventh day, you are to... You guys can't even say it, can you? You're kind of choking it out there. The word I'm looking for is rest. So we do six days of all of our stuff, but on the seventh day, you are to rest with a little bit more alacrity. Rest. Thank you very much. We're, we're getting there. Some of you are still really having a hard time with that word. The point is this. God's designed us to live in this cycle of six days on, one day off. It's not 12 days on and two days off. It's not 365 days on, no time off. It's not 11 and a half months on and two weeks of vacation. We're designed to do all of our rest, in, all of our work in six days and to rest on the seventh. And you are here in Southern California and you are looking at me and you are probably saying, isn't that sweet? God wants me to take a day off, right? I mean, but you don't understand how busy I am. You don't understand how much stuff I have to do. If I took a day off, my business would fall apart. If I took a day off, moms, my family would fall apart. If I wasn't tethered to this thing 24-7, somebody else is going to get that account or get that client that I should have had. You just don't understand all the things that would fall apart in this world if I took a day off. Because I am just that important, right? Well, 
I get it, you know? I mean, I run a small business, and the demands never stop. And it would be easy to work round the clock every day. And some or a lot of you do that. But I decided that just because my business demands 24-7 of me doesn't mean that I have to give it 24-7. It's interesting about the Sabbath. Um, it, it didn't actually originate with the Ten Commandments. I mean, we know that God worked six days and then God rested on the seventh. But even before the Ten Commandments were given, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. I guarantee they never got a day off. But God showed up and he, through Moses, he delivered them from their slavery. He brought them out of slavery and they came into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, they ran out of water and they ran out of food and they cried out to God. Well, first they grumbled a lot and then they cried out to God. And God miraculously provided water and then he provided food in the way of what? Manna, right? And manna was this mysterious food that showed up every day. They'd wake up in the morning and there would be just enough for the day and they'd gather it all and they'd eat. And the next day they'd wake up and there would be just enough manna for the day and they'd gather that all and they'd eat. And God gave them this instruction. You may gather food for six days, but the seventh is, a day, is the Sabbath day and on that day you won't gather any food. And he goes on to talk about the importance of rest. So before the Ten Commandments ever are given, we find this cycle of six days on and one day off. Big idea here. God will provide seven days of provision in six days of work. He will provide everything that you need in six days of work, and he provides for you this great rest. So why do we need the Sabbath? Well, first to find rest and refreshment. You know, I kind of look at the Sabbath um, is to my soul as sleep is to my body. You know, if I came to you and said, I got a great idea to be more productive, I'm going to stop sleeping. You know, what would happen? First, I'd get tired, and then I'd get sick, and then I'd get crazy, and then I'd die, right? That's kind of how it is with our soul. You know, we're designed, we're made to need sleep. We're made, our soul is made to need rest, to take a day of refreshment and, um, and, and, and rest. And so, so God made it that way. It's hard in our culture, but it's the way that we're designed. The second reason we need a Sabbath is just kind of to remind us that we're not really all that important. You know, a couple of, a month ago or so, I, I just packed a beach chair and climbed one of these mountains up here and sat there for a couple of hours up on top of a hill. And I was just kind of looking down and it just kind of struck me that, you know, the world is working just fine without me. You know, everybody's doing just fine. I'm up here. I'm not running the world. I'm not in control of things or anything else. And, and everything seems to be doing fine. Um, it's kind of hard to admit that, but uh, the world would be just fine without you. So it's to give us a sense of, of perspective. Deuteronomy 8.3 says that the author recounts the history with all the manna and the day off and everything else. Um, and then it says this, God did this to make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So part of the Sabbath, maybe the most important thing, is just taking this time to hear from God, to be with Him and to hear from Him. Because you don't live by accomplishment and achievement and success, but we live by every word 
that comes from the mouth of God. So the Sabbath is this wonderful invitation to just be with him and to hear from him. You know what I love most about the Sabbath? The Sabbath is just for us. You know, think about it. God doesn't get anything out of you taking a day off. It's not for him. He gives us this blessing for us, and we get to step into it. So that's why we need the Sabbath rest. Let me talk a little bit about how religion corrupts the Sabbath. And this is where we see these parallel passages in, uh, in Luke that I talked about. So the first story is in Luke chapter 6, verse 1, and it's a simple one. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields, and they're hungry. And so they start picking the grain, and they got to rub it between their hands and pull the kernels out and pop it in their mouth, and that's how they got popcorn back then. And, you know, the, the religious leaders saw them doing this, and they confronted Jesus, and they said, you and your disciples are breaking the law because rubbing that stuff together to get the little kernel out is work. Well, there were a lot of things that Jesus could have said to them at this point, but what Jesus said was kind of shocking. He looked at these religious leaders, and he said, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. See what he's saying? This commandment that was given 2,000 years ago, this is my commandment. And you have completely polluted it and, and misinterpreted it. What I meant for a blessing to you, you've made a burden to the people. Well, the very next section in, um, in Luke chapter 6, it's another Sabbath. And Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's there, and it kind of plays out. This is the one that Chad read. It kind of plays out like this courtroom drama, right? I mean, they're all in this, this, this synagogue together, and Jesus is here, and the religious leaders are over there, and over on this side is this man, and he's got this withered hand. And the, the religious leaders, they're looking at Jesus to see what he's going to do so that they can find a way to accuse him because somehow the grain thing didn't, didn't work out so well for them. And uh, he's looking for a way to accuse them. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he looks at this man and he says, stand up. He invites him to come forward. Jesus looks back at the religious leaders. He says, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath? They couldn't figure out a good answer to that question. So they were just quiet. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And as he does, his hand is restored. And the Pharisees, and the religious leaders, it says, were filled with rage at him. Why? Because he was again saying, you religious people have it all wrong. The Sabbath is for blessing. It's for the people. It's for their good. It's not to be a burden for them. Luke 13, another Sabbath. Again, Jesus is in the synagogue. Very, very similar story. In this case, there's a woman there, and she's bent over, and she's crippled, and she's been that way for 18 years. And Jesus comes, and he invites her to stand up, and he heals her. And it's a small community, and everybody there has known this woman for 18 years of being crippled. And she stands up for the first time that she can remember. And the people gave glory to God, and they were praising God for this. But the religious leaders... They said, you've got six days that you can heal people, but not on the Sabbath. Imagine, God gives us this blessing, and he doesn't want somebody healed on the Sabbath, but they have these religious blinders on that just keep them from seeing the truth that God wants them to see. 
Well, the very next chapter, Luke 14, it's another Sabbath. And Jesus is invited to one of the religious leaders' houses. And so they're in there and they're eating and they're drinking and they're talking. And there's a man there. And his body is swollen with fluids in his, in his tissues and in his body cavities. And it's an incurable disease at the time. And Jesus does the same thing. He calls the man up. He asks the religious leaders, do you get it yet? Is it okay for me to heal this person on the Sabbath? And again, they're silent. And Jesus heals the man. And it says that the religious leaders were humiliated and they were enraged. And they went out and plotted how they might destroy Jesus. So what's the point? Why does Luke include four stories about Jesus' view of the Sabbath contrasted to the religious leaders' views? It's because one thing we learn from Jesus is that religious people always approach God the wrong way. You see, rather than seeing his laws as a blessing to us because he loves us, religious people see God's law as setting up rules that they either need, and, and then either rewarding them for keeping them or punishing them for falling short. And there's no better illustration than the Sabbath of God's law being for our blessing and being for our good, not some arbitrary standard by which you can judge people and condemn them. The religious leaders... They thought they scored points with God. You know, they, they used the, the laws to convince themselves of their own goodness and put themselves above other people. You know, we can easily, we can go to church and easily fall into this trap. Is your church experience one of finding like, liberation and delight in following God because you know that you're his child and he loves you? Or is your church experience one of trying to work hard to please a God that might be angry at you and condemning towards you. You know, I've talked at church before here about the difference between living in a house as a child and living in a house as a renter. You see, in a renter relationship, if I pay rent and I keep my end of the bargain, then the landlord is obligated to do their part and provide me a place to live and keep it up. But if, you, if you're a child, it's completely different. You see, a child lives in the house because of his standing as a child, not because he pays rent. A Christian doesn't say, if I do these things, then God will be my father. No. He says, because God is my father, I can rest in him. I don't have to work to prove myself because he has already accepted me. These religious leaders were renters. They thought if they abstained from cleaning and baking and cooking and gardening and all the stuff that they had laid out rules against on the Sabbath, if they just followed all those laws, then they'd be accepted by God and God would have to do something for them. God would be obligated to them to provide blessing. What did Jesus say to them? Jesus called them children of hell. And he said, if, they, if you get people to follow you, they're going to follow you right to hell. Wow. It's a harsh thing to say to a religious leader, right? God's really clear on this. I mean, how could, how could he say that to them? Because he didn't give his law 
so that by following it, people could be renters and earn their way to heaven? Because Romans is really clear. By the works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified in his sight. See, the religious person's always trying to do more, to feel valuable, to make their mark in the world, and think if they do these things, they'll be a valuable person, and then maybe God will be their father. That's how you know if you're a religious person or if you're a Christian. You see, a Christian rests in the knowledge that God, their loving father, accepts them. So what are you clinging to? What form of rent payment are you making? Is it um, just being a good person? Is it belonging to a church? Is it doing good things? Is it trying your best? Is it being a faithful husband or a faithful wife? Is it being an ethical business person? Is it trying to make the world a better place? I mean, all of those are really good things. But none of those things will bring you into a relationship with God. And none of those things will provide the deep rest that God designed for us to have. So how do we find that deep rest? How do we enter into the rest that God has promised? I was listening to a message by Kim, Tim Keller a while ago, and, and he was talking about the stress and our need for, uh, for rest, and it was a really interesting point that he made. He talked about what he called the work beneath the work. You know, uh, we work 24-7, we, we do all these things, we sacrifice our family, we sacrifice our health, and he asked the question, why? What's beneath all of that work that we're doing? And I think that the psychologist I talked about before where she said, she was on to something when she said, the stress has become chic. We, we actually use that to measure ourselves against other people. And I'm more busy than somebody else. You know, that, that if I work harder and work harder and work harder, I can somehow prove myself. You know, back in, um, well, some of you are old enough to remember um, the classic movie, Chariots of Fire. And in that movie, it pits the two fastest men in the world against each other in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Um, Eric Little is a Christian, and the um, Olympic Committee decides to hold the qualifying heats for the 100-meter dash on a Sunday. And so for Eric, that was his Sabbath, and it, he felt it would violate his conscience if he ran on Sunday, and so he opted out of the race. And, you know, they asked him, and he has, he has this famous quote, right? He's, they said, why do you run? And he says, I run because I'm fast, but I also run because when I run, I feel God's pleasure. You know, for him, it was an easy decision not to violate his conscience in the Sabbath because he was running not for the purpose of proving himself, but for the purpose of just feeling God's pleasure. His opponent, Harold Abrahams, on the other hand, had a very different worldview. And Abrahams was asked before the Olympics kind of his thoughts on the race. And here's what he said. He said, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Wow. We want to matter. We want to justify our existence. We want to cling on to something that says, I am an okay person. And the irony was, without Eric Little running, Harold Abrahams did win the gold medal, but it wasn't enough. 
because it's never enough. It's not just the physical work we do, it's this constant striving for significance, this work beneath the work, and when we don't find it, we just don't have the rest. In the creation story, God creates on day one, and he looks back at the end of the day and he says, it's good. At the end of day two, he looks back and he says, it's good. On day three, he looks back and he says, it's good. And on day six, God looks at all of the creation that he's made, and he says what? It is very good. It is very good. And in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, it says this, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself rested, as God also rested from his works. You see, for the religious person who's trying hard to follow the rules and pay rent to God, you'll never find rest because it'll never be enough. You can never look back and say, it is very good because you will always fall short. And for the secular person, it's very similar. Even when you take God out of the picture, the secular person trying to achieve and to perform or to be a good person or whatever standard you set here for yourself, you can never look back and say, it is very good. Be based on what I did, I'm a significant person. I'm someone important. And then rest. Because it always feels unfinished, just like it did with Harold Abrahams. And God is saying here in Hebrews, that there is rest for your soul. That when we enter into God's rest, we can cease from our work and the work beneath the work, and we can enter fully into His rest. On what basis? Something that I've done? No, not at all. It's on the basis of what God has done. So Jesus, when He's on the cross, He looks down, he says, it is finished. He lived the life that I could never live. And he died the death that I deserved. And because of that, God accepts me as I am. Not based on my record, but based on his record. You see, it's all on the basis of what God has done on the cross that I can look back and I can say, it is finished. And I can cease from my striving, and I can cease from my work, and I can cease from trying to justify my existence, and I can enter into God's rest because the only one who I have to prove myself to has already said, this is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. So I hope that we can not only enter into the rest of just not doing stuff on Sunday, but enter into that deep rest where we don't have to prove ourselves, where we know that based on what God did on the cross and my acceptance of that, that he sees me as his beloved child and I don't have to work for it anymore. As we, as we aim towards the close, I want to just... Um, give you a couple of practical things here. But first, I just want to say this, that if you, anything that you do to practice the Sabbath, you know, in terms of not doing things on Sunday, 
without understanding what we just talked about, is never going to work. Vacations don't deal with the deep things of life. And they don't provide deep rest for the soul. Just like God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to a place and gave them Sabbath rest and blessing, in the same way, he leads us out of our slavery of trying to prove ourselves to God, to other people. And our Sabbath should celebrate our release from that slavery as a remembrance of what God has done. That's what the Sabbath is really all about. It's our release from slavery. And if you can't rest, that's a good indication that you're still a slave. You're a slave to other people's expectations. You're a slave to your own need for success. You're a slave to trying to prove yourself worthy. So God comes along and he says, rest. So a couple of things. I actually emailed a, some friends of mine and asked for their advice on the Sabbath and what they do to, um, to honor that. And several said, you know, go, going to church and worshiping. I think this is a great thing. Um, and I just encourage you guys, if you're not like regular in being here, try to be here regularly because this is such a blessing to come and hear God's word and worship with God's people. It sets the tone for the whole rest of the day. So church is a great thing on the Sabbath. Get together with friends and family. Share a meal together. Have times of silence and solitude. Somebody said they journal. They look back over the last six days on the seventh day to kind of see how the, how the week has gone. Carve out time for prayer. Spend time God, reading God's word. Um, serve people. You know, Jesus healed people on the Sabbath, right? That, that's a good thing, to serve people on the Sabbath. Um, and for you moms... Um, I know this is particularly hard for you. Um, I can just not go to work on Sunday, you know? That, that's fairly easy. You can't just not be a mom on Sunday. And so I asked some women in particular what their thoughts were, and, and they shared a couple of things. Um, one said that she doesn't have the kids or herself do any chores. The kids don't do any homework on Sunday. Um, one said, get out of the regular schedule, the regular routine schedule. Do something different. Have something special that goes on on the Sabbath so that you know it's the Sabbath. Play games as a family. Be together as a family. Do things that are fun. Um, one, one person, actually more than one, said this. It, it takes planning and work in order to rest. In other words, you've got to plan for it. On Saturday, you've got to make sure the kids' homework is done and the shopping is done and the, the laundry or whatever you need to do is done so that you can take that day of rest and it's not competing with the, with the rest that you, uh, that you desperately need. One couple um, actually split their Sabbath between Saturday and Sunday. So his Sabbath was Saturday, he got the day off to, to rest, and her day off was Sunday so that he could take the kids and do the stuff um, and, and allow her to completely rest on her Sunday. You know, it's up to you if, um, if it's all for your benefit. So if God's, it's God's gift and if you practice it, I believe that you'll find great blessing. And if you don't, you know, that's okay too, but you'll live a 25-8 lifestyle and you won't find that deep rest for your soul. This is God's gift that he's inviting you into. So if you want to taste the Sabbath and see if it delivers what's promised, then you have to actually keep the Sabbath 
And that doesn't mean just agree with the ideas about the Sabbath. It means actually keeping the Sabbath. And so what I want to do today is I just want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to take the next four Sundays, maybe not today because you probably have things already scheduled, but the next four Sundays or whatever day of the week is your day. Scott, it doesn't have to be Sunday. Scott does not, Sabbath is not his Sunday. Sunday's not his Sabbath, right? I mean, it's a full day for him. He's preaching, he's, he's on all day. So he's got to take a different day as his Sabbath. But whatever day you choose, make a commitment to four consecutive weeks of Sabbath rest, and you figure out what that means for you. But it's not work, okay? And see if you experience God's blessing. Finally, if you're here today and you haven't already entered into God's rest, if, if, I'm, if it's like I'm speaking a foreign language, what, rest, what, what does that mean? Um, if you're one of those who's working hard to feel significant or hopefully earn God's approval, you know, um, I'll be up here after church, Scott will be up here after church, a few of us will be up here, and if you want to have a conversation about this um, and just understand what it really means to enter into God's rest, I'd love to have that discussion with you. Would you just pray with me? Oh, Lord God, it is good that you love us enough to command us to rest. Wow, it seems like an oxymoron in some ways, but um, it's so true and we need it so much. And so, Father, we, we just thank you. We rest in your love. We rest in your grace. We rest in what you have done we're so glad that we can look back and say, it is finished, and it is very good. Not the work that I've done, but the work that you've done, and that you accept me on that basis. Father, we just um, thank you. And I pray for each of these people. I pray for these commitments, Lord. I pray that each one would have some accountability, would talk to somebody before they leave church today and just say, I made that commitment. Will you keep me accountable to it? Because I really want it to happen. And Lord, I pray that this church would enter into your rest more fully with just delight and joy because we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremy and Andrea are going to be in the well uh, at the end of service. And so if you want to hear a little bit more about their story, um, that would be great. One way or the other, whatever you do, Rest today and have a wonderful, wonderful Sabbath. God bless you.